a Podcast One production. Most crimes are pretty mundane. Murders are usually a crime of passion by a close relative or friend. Fraud is usually committed by a business partner. But what happens when someone criminally minded decides to take an innovative, entrepreneurial, dare I say disruptive path? On this episode, we're looking at the oddest bunch of organised crime rings in modern history and asking, are they... Cat's pyjamas or cat's piss with the chaser? With me are Andrew Hanson, Chris Taylor, Dom Knight, and I'm your host, Charles Firth. Our first unusual organised crime ring is, it was an art crime and it was actually busted in July 2018, so oh, quite recent. Very recent. Yes. Um, I love oh, Banksy. Uh, no, it wasn't Banksy. It was in uh, the Calton Isieta region. How do you pronounce that? Caltaniceta? Caltaniceta. I don't think you should ever correct your pronunciations, Charles. The the Caltaniceta region in Sicily, where (laughs) members of a local uh, organised crime group had uh, were busted illegally excavating archaeological material uh, and then producing forgeries about these genuine pieces of archaeological things that they dug up. When they busted the the police, two hundred and fifty police. were involved in the raids. They they went around forty buildings. They found twenty five thousand antiquities. That over the course of the last few years, this organised crime ring has had <laughs> dug up and created, you know, forged it forged certificates of authenticity, mm. and then shipped around the rest of the world. So the antiquities from the classical world is now is this crime ring called the Catholic Church? Any yeah, <laughs> this goes way back. I mean, yeah. in Italy, they've been digging up random bones and saying mm. St. Peter's, you know, knee bone for, for centuries. Yeah, no, well, it, this got started with actually forging antiquities, but then they realised actually it was taking them so much time to forge the antiquities that it was easier to just dig up real, <laughs> real antiquities old bones. and then just claim that they'd done it legally and with all the... Correct. Ah, the you say they forged those, so they, these things are still old. Yeah, yeah, old things that yeah. belong in museums. Yeah. So, so why why are they forged? I mean, well, the, what's, the, what's the forged part of it? The forged part is simply that they did it legally. Like, apparently, you're not allowed to just dig up antiquities and ship them around the world. You can't disturb graves. You can't disturb uh, grave sites. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, you've got. Yeah, you've got to mm. actually. You've got to be a university and apply for all these permits yeah. and everything like that. But they wouldn't be bones, Don. I'm, I'm assuming it's things like urns and statues uh, yeah. and busts and that kind of thing. It's exactly so, what it is. Yeah. It isn't. I mean, I always, you know, <laughs> kind of have a finders keepers mentality mm. about this stuff. I'm sure there are huge regulations in place for proper archaeology to. Take Take place, and let's remember we're talking about Sicily, yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> we're even even the clean people are sort of members of crime gangs, and oh, well, you know it's sort of it's the home of the Godfather. It's all of this. I mean, it's nice to see them getting out of drugs and into art. Mm. That's so, true. It's very highbrow as an organised crime. It like, is. It's not hot prostitution. People aren't dying. It's just antiquities. I think this is positive development for Sicily. I'm saying cats pajamas. Well, apparently. Um So is the rest of the world because uh, apparently by the time it was busted, 90% of all antiquities, uh, of all antiques um, were dug up by organised crime. Like it was a massive, it it basically... So they're good at their job. Yeah, they're very good at their job and they became experts in 
very neatly digging up these antiquities <laughs> and keeping them really, you know, well. This is the well. thing. This is sort of like they're the air tasker mm. of archaeology because, you know, you could wait for, you know, a proper boffin and, you know, someone in their ivory tower to come along, get a permit, you know, arrange a whole team of people to meet with one pick, mm. one shovel and then take a very long time to do it. It sounds like we've cut we've cut out all of that yeah. and just got, you know, some, some hoodlums. Yeah. Uh, but who are very, very <laughs> skilled <laughs> and, in, in digging up some historically significant sites. This yeah, is great. Because yeah. we know capitalism's efficient at systems, right? So basically, th- imagine like Las... Remember Las Vegas, which is the safest city in the United States, because if anyone, you know, pickpockets someone, they just get immediately killed and dumped mm. outside of Las Vegas in a massive grave. It's a very efficient, effective system, and I, I think organised crime should run more things. Yeah. I think they should be in charge of the Louvre. You know, like you know, when you go to galleries and there's those old people sitting there in in each room, just, and they look like they're about to die. They're, you know, it's, it's can't be a an intellectually stimulating job. Now, anyone could get past them. You know, you don't even need to be you know armed or anything. It wouldn't be too hard to put one past one of those people. But if you have sort of you know mafioso, oh yeah, you know, yeah. Tony Soprano, the from Soprano, running every gallery. So the Uffizi in Florence, the Louvre in Paris, even the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney. I mean, mm. then we you. Never see any of this art theft that's going on day in, day out that in the That new wing would have gotten built, wouldn't it? Very quickly you if the organised crime had been involved. It would have and you wouldn't have seen that Banksy painting get shredded. They would have been there guarding it, making sure it's still intact. <laughs> they would have exposed Banksy many years ago. Probably I'm killed him, with but you. exposed I'd like him. To see, I'd like to see kind of the opposite thing. I'd like to see sort of Aussie bike gangs and meth lab ah, guys yes. get, getting more into uh, digging up, uh, you know, busts of David and, and sort of, you know, carvings of angels and this, uh, and paintings by Raphael. Well, that's well I think that, that is exactly what happened is that they started out trying to do crime and they've instead become really quite good at archaeology. And it would be worth a yeah. lot more. Like these, I mean, these yes. things are priceless. Yeah. So you can shift, you know, a couple of bags of meth and make, what, 200 bucks in an afternoon. Whereas the, the, we're talking about $2 billion worth, some of these uh, mm. antiquities, aren't we? Well, what had been happening is that actually these things were getting into real museums, like private mm. buyers were buying them. And, and then, then they'd on-sell to museums. Yeah, exactly. And oh. and it's not that they – the vast majority of them, they because they started out, they had 1,200 um, forgeries. The rest, so about 24,000 of them, were genuine antiquities. Yeah, right. And yeah. because they were high quality, they'd been dug out correctly, there's a real sort of confusion going on in the art world at the moment, which is, well, these are actually legitimate sort of things. And yeah. and the reason they started doing it was because they realised if you steal an antiquity from a museum and then try it some, sell that's it hard. somewhere else, it's that's just, really hard. It's too because, hot. Mm. Yeah, it's too hot. Whereas if you dig it out of the ground, no one's seen it before. You can say, well, you haven't seen it before because I just dug it out of the ground. Yeah. It's the perfect crime. It is. But the last bizarre factoid about this is that ISIS, you know, the terrorist organisation. Did you say ISIS? ISIS. 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 Oh, is it ISIS? Okay. Is that ISIS, the terrorist organisation. They want in. Yeah, they want in. They, they actually have started using the sale of art as one of the main means of funding their activities. See, aren't the Taliban stupid blow, blowing, blowing up all those borders that they had in Afghanistan? They could have just shipped them off to Western museums. So what do you think? As, a, as a, an organised crime ring, is it cat's pyjamas or cat's beers? Well, it cat's pyjamas. I mean, I can see the conundrum. Um, and this is sort of one of those, I guess, ethical debates about do the ends justify the means? Because criminal activity is clearly yielding 
historically important, artistically important fruit. Mm. You know what I mean? Like society is always better off the more we know about our forebears, the more, you know, ruins and relics from ancient times we dig up. So if, you know, Indiana Jones, I mean, not Indiana Jones was a one-off. Mm. Most archaeologists aren't as resourceful or as successful as him when it comes to getting this shit. So if we've got people who, you know, incentivised by a dollar, clearly, but who've got the the motivation to enrich the world by digging this up, then I think that's only a good thing. I don't care where most of this stuff comes from. As we said earlier, when you walk through the Vatican Museum, you know the Catholics have stolen most of it from the Greeks or other people. Mm. I don't really care as long as we all get to share in that knowledge. So, no, cat's pyjamas. Look, organised crime gangs have always dug holes in the ground. I'm just in favour of them pulling up ancient pots out of them instead of just burying witnesses in them. I think it's a great <laughs> bit of progress. Andrew? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a bit of a step forward um, for for criminals, um, you know, beyond kind of pillaging and murdering uh, people to to be, um, you know, filling our museums with fine art is probably <laughs> a good thing, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, they're not the first uh, criminally minded mm. people to do this. Remember that small group called the Nazis, um, yeah, who were very right. fond of their art, and oh, they yeah. sort of shipped art mm. all around Switzerland so, and into oh, bank yeah. vaults and, and that kind of thing. As far as I'm aware, no objection to Nazis, <laughs> obviously. Who <laughs> <laughs> would you believe? Well, that would, was fine. Well, I just saw. This is fine. I, I don't see. I see them I'm as not. the courier. I see them as kind of the the deliveroo in the process. They didn't make the art. They just shipped it to a more interesting place. Okay, uh, our next uh, unusual organised crime ring, um, I'm going to get you to guess uh, what it was trading in. So it was busted in December 2014 and they were busted for letting their customers drink rich fluids. Oh, what sort of rich fluid would it letting be? Letting their customers drink. Yeah. So, so, so sorry, they, they ran what, a, a restaurant? They, they ran a sort of um, a set of establishments. I think there was about 100 of them was by it the Don- end. Was it involved around. Donald Trump and was he in Moscow? Is that the sort of rich fluid <laughs> we're talking about here? It wasn't that type of rich fluid. Right. Was it rich as in expensive, so like a, it a, was cup, expensive. Of, a cup of coffee in Sydney Airport? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not I mean that whiskey. expensive. <laughs> no, it was, a, uh, it was about um, 100 pounds, so about $200 per, per drink. Right, and so the customers knew what they were drinking? Or? Yes, yes, absolutely. Is it uh, alcohol? No, nope, it's not alcohol. Is it a bodily fluid? Yes, it is. Is, a is it a sort of anti-ageing uh, remedy? Like is, are they selling, nope. you know, like young people's blood? or? No. Nope. Is it urine? No, nope. I'm talking about real, genuine breast milk, and it wasn't for kids. <laughs> I just kids. love how we didn't guess that. Like, we all thought, oh, probably urine or, like, <laughs> diarrhea. Like, that would be a more yeah. obvious yeah. drink not, than not breast milk. The most life-giving fluid <laughs> yeah. for humanity the ever. One, yeah. Yeah. The one drink we and, all grow up on. And it wasn't it, – they weren't buying it to serve their babies or, or something like that. Mm, they were buying it – these were grown men, mainly, mm. uh, buying it to – be able to sort of suckle women who'd just recently given birth and mm. drink their breast milk. So it became is, a huge phenomenon. Is this a China. health scam or a fetish? No, it's a or fetish. Both. It's a fetish. Oh, it's a fetish. No, 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 Which country is this in? It's in, uh, it's in China. And sorry, if, if they've just given birth, they're already expressing. Or, yeah, so, so it, why do you need to buy it in a separate bottle? No, no, no. no the, what are they the, doing? The, the breast milk is the in tap. the breast. Yeah. So they give their child just infant formula or something like that, and then the customers come in 
and suck the the milk out of the woman's breast. Oh, okay. And they so pay sort of, uh, oh, about two hundred bucks. Sorry, it's a cust- I thought it was just the husband mm. or the father of the child who has a fetish to jump on board after the kids had a go. Yeah. But they're actually no, no. the husband's farming his wife right. out yes. to strangers to suckle. Yes. So you're exactly. a CEO. Oh. You've had a rough day no. at the office trading, you know, whatever, buying imported uh, fake pots. And you want to relax, so you go to a special establishment where you can breastfeed. That's yes. what you're saying. That's right. Yeah, and it was, right. A, it was a subscription service. Customers <laughs> had to pay. <laughs> this is honestly true. Huh? Customers had to pay. $14 a week to become a member. Oh, so it's cheaper and, than Foxtel. Yeah. And, <laughs> and have access to the lactating women. They didn't actually get you the breast milk. It just oh. got, you, through yeah, the door. got you through it the door. It got you through the door. Mm. Right. The bra then, unhooked. And then they, <laughs> you can have a strawberry move while you wait to the next yeah. stage. <laughs> <laughs> and then they went along to quote unquote milk bars, is what oh, they were yeah. called. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Oh. And paid the women directly to be fed, <laughs> and it was about two hundred dollars per session. And um, and and oh, that's quite cheap. It was busted it? after an undercover reporter went and and did it to confirm. What's illegal about it? This is the thing because if you remember from medieval times, it, where being a wet nurse was a job. If mm. you have had mm. a baby and start lactating, as long as people are, are, are sort of clearing it, it keeps going. It doesn't have to be a baby, whatever. So, who who's being harmed here by this provision of? Uh, well, milk bar. First of all, the babies who the lactating women had recently given birth to were denied mm. the breast milk. That's a bit of a technicality, isn't it? But also, there was there were two types of service. One was the clean service. <laughs> oh dear! Oh. Was, <laughs> I don't don't want to know about the other service. Just tell us about the clean. Did one. they change the nappies of the CEOs? <laughs> no, no. And then the dirty service was you could have sex with the lactating mother while. Um, while, while suckling. suckling. Yeah. Well, it gets more and more charming. This, <laughs> and this how, how much was dirty? Um, uh, look, I think it was about 50-50. Apparently most of the regular customers were were into the dirty service. I think the reason why it was busted is because the authorities basically thought it was a prostitution Ring. I wonder why they would think that. I mean, it was just a totally above-board community service from the same way you've described it. I mean, my question is, I mean, you three have all, uh, you've had kids. Yeah. Your mm. wives have breastfed, presumably. Did any mm. of you ever sneak a little taste? Because I'd like, to, what, what's it taste like? It's sweet. It? Yeah, I'm surprised. I was amazed how how, how sweet it, it, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it, like it's like an it is like an oak or a sort of yeah. vanilla malt it's like, shake. Is it? I mean, chocolate, it's amazing. Chocolate milk, I would say. Caramel salted oak. Your ye of huge judgment on the Chinese <laughs> for all this ridiculous far fetched fetish. You've all jumped on <laughs> for a taste. On. We, we, we weren't hanging. We weren't latching on and having a whole <laughs> meal while having sex with the lady at the same time. Well, that's my next question. clean or You've got to reheat some frozen product and you've got to check that it's the right temperature for the kid, that kind of thing. Right. You, and you squirt it on your wrist. You squirt it on your wrist and lick your wrist. Well, you're at, not doing it right. Like, to make sure that it's um, why wouldn't the right you temperature. Because, you know, in foreplay it's not uncommon to mm. suck on a nipple, so why wouldn't you kill two birds with one stone, as it were, and well, still enjoy you, a bit of... You've got to save it up, Chris. It's not, you know, I mean, the baby needs it. So you can't just hog it all to yourself. Right. And... But but yeah. what you have what you have sort of I guess um, convinced me of is that it, it's it's pleasing to taste. It, it's not a, it's not a disgusting drink. Well, no. But you've obviously missed the for it. the news story earlier in the year that one a very respected radio presenter uh, confessed on air that his wife 
convinced him that uh, he should take advantage of the service alongside the newborn. And so he, he enthuses yeah. about how excellent it but is. But I reckon well, it's very good for you. Husbands would like, maybe not to the extent that they are in China where it's becoming a regular thing, but everyone would have yeah. a little sample, well, wouldn't especially they? Especially if you were Charles and it was chocolate flavoured. But, but Andrew, you're, you're lactose intolerant. Wouldn't <laughs> He's <laughs> not lactation intolerant. That's partly why I didn't uh, <laughs> want too much of it. I'm just um, uh, love. I'll just have a lactose first before <laughs> I start suckling on you. <laughs> Can you? I mean, I assume the bulk of the the fetish and the pleasure was the attachment to the nipples. Like, if you just sold it separately in cartons, mm. you know, mm. in vending machines, would yeah. that have the same appeal? Is the drink so delicious that you'd buy it regardless, or is it the manner in which you suckle that's kind of the turn on? I'm sure I remember a kind of odd spot news story about uh, breast milk cappuccinos. As a thing that you could... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that's right. We, mm. we once got served um, uh, muffin. Like, when, when we were at university, the Trotskyists were into breast milk muffins. <laughs> no, no, that was marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there were breast milk muffins and somebody yeah. had a horrible disease and her breast milk turned blue and she made these muffins out of them, the blue muffins. Could a vegan have breast milk? Uh, well, no. Yeah, because no animals... No animals were harmed. harmed it's not, process, a, not an animal product. And I reckon that might be a, a nice workaround if you wanted milk yeah, with your coffee as a vegan. Forget that soy and almond nonsense, just have a bit of breast milk. And it's probably cheaper than almond milk anyway. <laughs> well, you've got it on tap if you're married to someone. Yeah. Um, okay, so cat's pyjamas or cat's pies? Well, I'm not going to say that the breast milk prostitution ring is cat's pyjamas, Charles. <laughs> I'd, I'd, be, I'd be put in jail. <laughs> it's cat's piss. I think there's a sort of certain romance about it. I think you, you know we, we we live in an age where all of our drinks are too manufactured. You know all these energy drinks like Red Bull and stuff. I don't like it. It's too many chemicals. But just getting back to the very first drink we ever had, Red Boob, as a human, which was our mother's milk, and I think we should drink it all the way through life. So no cat's pajamas. We've been talking about unusual organised crime rings. And this next one is a very, very simple concept. In fact, I think it's almost genius how simple it is. It was busted in November 2013 and basically involved criminals who would ring up people at random. They were in the US and they'd ring up people in Mexico or Guatemala or, you know, somewhere a little bit further south. And they would say, we've got your father or we've got your mother. Um, and you've got to pay money uh, because we've kidnapped them. And they'd convince these people that they'd been taken hostage, their, their close relatives had been taken hostage, right. and they'd milk thousands of dollars out of these people with no kidnapping required whatsoever. Wow. The kidnap-free hostage situation. Yes, a kidnap-free hostage. It was completely bogus kidnapping. A kidnap-free well, kidnapping. That's really? amazing. Did they ever send like a sort of dog day afternoon hostage negotiation person down to talk to the empty building? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Give up now, <laughs> even though there's nobody in there. Yeah. I mean, did this happen or? It's, yeah, it's yeah. Sort no. of like like real-life spam, isn't it? You know when you get those emails from the Prince of Nigeria saying, I'm, you know, I want to give you all my money, and it, it, it is yeah. like one, 0.111% of the population is dumb enough to do it, but that's hmm. still not a bad business model because hmm. even if someone replies, they're still ahead. 
It's sort of like that. They're relying on someone so stupid to not just make one phone call to their father or mother to see if they're okay before sending the cheque off to the kidnappers. So, well, it's cat's pyjamas in that they've successfully understood that there is enough of humanity that's an imbecile mm. to actually go along with this. It so is, I, I, I applaud them. It is quite brilliant too because if you think about it, uh, the, the penalties for fraud are probably much less than kidnapping. So... Uh, mm. They wouldn't be too bad. I, I guess it depends, though, on on a, a degree of affection and familial love. I don't know that my family would be willing to pay oh, if true. I'd been kidnapped. I can't see them shelling out for me. But for most families, look, that would work a treat. <laughs> yeah, it would be funny if there was a bidding war. Like, you know, like the, you know, the, the kidnappers said, oh, we want $10,000. You go, oh. I'll do it for five. Because like, you don't really like your dad that much. You sort of start haggling over yeah, what like you're prepared I like him. I just pay. don't 10 grand like yeah. him. How many people fell for this? Well, it's actually interesting. I didn't quite realise how many there are. There are dozens of people in, in America uh, who fell for it, in Maryland, Minnesota, Virginia and other states. Wow. But there, and then hundreds in um, in Mexico, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Well, look, it makes sense in Mexico where kidnapping is incredibly common. I mean, I remember, like in Mexico City, if you're a tourist, they warn you that there's also a very f- fast form of armed robbery where they just stop your car, take it to the ATM, you get all the money out, and that's done with. It's a very efficient, effective crime. It's quick. So I can see why Mexicans would be like, oh, God, it's the third time this week. Here you go. Where do I send the money? And, and apparently the way uh, they did it was they'd ramp up, they'd say, oh, we're going to harm the relative. And then if they sort of went, oh, I don't know whether I'm going to think, they'd, they'd then ramp up the threat and say, oh, no, now we're going to kill him. And, and, yeah. But it didn't exist at all. You know, when you, you, in, certainly in movies, but also kind of in real life situations like that awful incident at the um, Lint Cafe and stuff, mm. in these sort of situations, you always kind of provide evidence that you have actually got the person. Yeah, proof of life. A phone call, There's a whole you put movie them on the that. phone or you make a video. Surely people are asking for that. Now, this is, this is the <laughs> authorities actually then made a statement after they busted this crime ring and said, you must always ask for a proof of life. <laughs> Right. when paying in hostage situations. Like, well, so fair enough. Yeah, I don't, well, I think that's right. But look, there are a few things that work like this, and it's a cautionary tale. This is probably the first lesson in this entire podcast series, is that did you guys get the random phone calls in Mandarin? Because um, oh, yes, it's the same thing where they just ring any number in Australia hoping that they'd get someone who spoke Mandarin who was terrified of the Chinese authorities and would pay up because the embassy had some sort of urgent desire to see them. It was all made up. Is that what that was? That was what it was. I just thought someone had got my order mixed up at the local takeaway, but it actually was. Yeah, they were trying to scam people into thinking that there was a problem with their visa or something back in China. Right. And a few and of course, paying the authorities a bit of money to make it all go away. Now, uh, but the, the, the ring... I spent weeks trying to ring back my local Chinese. Yeah. Going, no, no, I believe you're trying to get in touch with me. I've been oh. waiting two days for these spring rolls. Yeah. <laughs> You've been a very hungry and confused yeah, man, especially when you hadn't even ordered the food no, in the first place. No, but you know when you're pissed, you don't know what you've ordered the night before. Like, well, it's, it's better than, I suppose, if you thought you'd ordered yourself a bit of dirty breast milk service. Yes. <laughs> but the... Um, the cl- crime ring came unstuck uh, because the only way they could actually pick up the money from the, you know, Western Union that they got the mo- oh, right. money wide to was to put it into their real names. 
So, oh. Oh, oops. So it was <laughs> a, a slight drawback. It was a little plan. bit of a sort of um, dumbness on both sides. And so the authorities, after a while, sort of realised, oh, there's been a spate of hostage mm. takings. Um, why don't we go and see Carlos Juano yeah. sort of? And, Isn't um, that interesting? Like, do you reckon... I can't imagine any circumstances, even if there was proof of life in which I'd hand over money, mm. which isn't to say I'm tight ass or anything. It's just, I, I think it's what the government and law enforcement agencies advise. You should never, never negotiate, negotiate with terrorists. With te- well, but these aren't even terrorists, just with kidnappers, because the minute you give money to them, is then they get emboldened and think they can keep pulling this scam. Mm. So the way, what the government prefers us to do is just resist all, and it must be hard if it's your daughter or something who's been taken, you must just want to end it and say, look, just give them the 10,000 bucks. But apparently you're not meant to. So as parents, do you reckon you could withstand handing the cash over? No, and also I think that that's a bit of a myth. I think that's the official position. Ah, but it's the government's table. But secretly, a a lot of brown paper bags being exchanged diplomatically. Yeah, and I I knew a diplomat who who actually said, "Yeah, it's all off the books. It's all done through insurance companies and things like that." So we do negotiate. But actually, um, Australia all the time, you know, pays ransoms to to help Australian citizens. Didn't this happen with one of the Hearst kids back in the day? Wasn't it movie about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredibly, that that movie with and uh, Kevin Spacey that got recast was so about that situation. <laughs> right. But um, but you'd really need to do some research on the family, wouldn't you? Like just ringing up randomly isn't going to help. Like if you rang the Queen and said uh, we've got Prince Edward, uh, we'll kill him. Like she's not going to care about that, is she? <laughs> well, yeah, no, no. <laughs> There'd be quite a few royals. She'd be she'd probably pay the pay you to get rid of. <laughs> oh, thank you for taking Princess Anne off my hands. So in terms of uh, ringing up random people and demanding hostage money, is that cat's pyjamas or cat's piss? Well, cat's pyjamas for cleverness. I mean, for, for, for a lazy hostage taker, it solves all the problems of having to actually do the kidnapping. I mean, this is a genius. It is brilliant. No, cat's pyjamas for me as well. I would never want to kidnap anyone. They'd be very messy and ugly. But prank calls, sure. Absolutely, I'm on board. Who do I call? I think I called it as cat's pyjamas at the start, so uh, I don't need to repeat my views. I I haven't changed them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) So this next one is an extraordinary one from the late 1930s. It ended up being prosecuted in 1941. But essentially in 1938, police in Philadelphia started noticing uh, an increase in hospital patients suffering from sort of toxic overload. And then they started tracing all these really quite poor patients who, you know, were just from working class Philadelphia, many of them unemployed. What is toxic overload? Is that like what happened to Charlie Sheen for a couple of weeks back then? <laughs> well, it, it, back then, they, they didn't quite know what it was. They, it, they originally were sort of going, oh, you know, it could be something liver failure. We don't quite know what's going on. Then they started noticing that all these poor people had very large life insurance schemes insured against them. And it, it was all linked to a same group of insurance agents. Ah. So over the next few months, and so, and so a lot of the deaths ended up being sort of um, chalked up to pneumonia or um, other, other causes of death, cancer, things like that, because they hadn't actually... Um, you know, toxic screening was not something that you did when a patient came into hospital back then. And it wasn't until 1939 that they 
busted the ring and found out that this pair of cousins, Herman and Paul Petrio, were running an arsenic poisoning ring and they were killing hundreds, possibly thousands of people, organising that life insurance uh, be put against each person Uh. before they killed them and then collecting on the life insurance. Is that who buys life insurance? How how could they claim it? Because wouldn't the victims have taken out the life insurance? Well, so this is the thing. It it was a, some would say, needlessly elaborate (laughs) (laughs) scheme that involved basically creating a huge number of sort of corrupt dealings. Um, Because you're right, you can't just take out a a life insurance. On behalf of someone else. Someone someone else and then kill them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, but you can't do that. So instead what, what you had to do was you had to convince a near relative of the person um, who they wanted to kill right. to take out the life insurance and then either sort of get them in on the ruse and sort of say to them, hey, why get don't we go and... in on the ruse. <laughs> hey, do you want in? Yeah. We're going to kill your cousin. <laughs> but with between arsenic. Us, with arsenic. In very pain, agonising death. Very painful death. But, but hey, <laughs> we'll each split the winnings of their life insurance policy. Are you in? Well, Who would go along with that? Yeah, no, this is, this is what something. happened. Really? No, no, so they, they did things like they would get... They got... Guide, marriage guidance counsellors and priests and things like that. And they'd say, look, what? do you know of anyone whose who's marriage is on the rocks? And the priest would go, oh, yeah, so-and-so's marriage is on the rocks. And then they'd go and chat to the woman and say, look, we understand your marriage is on the rocks. Do you want to get rid of him, like your husband? And and convince right. the woman that way. Oh, or, right. or say... Or if the woman was sort of, oh, yeah, no, but I really want to get back with my husband, they'd say, oh, okay, well, we'll help you take out a life insurance policy on him because he's so valuable to you and, you know, we'll we'll cover that expense. But why don't we give you this love potion to give to him what? and he'll either, he'll either become enraptured with you again or he'll die because it's a very potent love potion. This is a very elaborate and complicated insurance yeah, yeah, yeah. for wow. Priests were involved? Like the highest guardians of moral conduct oh, and yes. behaviour. Oh, yes. They were also involved <laughs> in this. Priests have never done anything wrong, Chris. <laughs> They're not normally <laughs> advocates for murder or scams. But hang on, did the priest, did the priest know about this or, or did they, the priest uh, the, get a cut or were they yeah, just I think the, the priests were the part of the it was the whole Italian sort of Philadelphia wow. Italian community that uh, got in on this so but even if, okay, and then, so and then they had to the, get the and then they had to get the doctors in on it because the whole thing it's is too there was, do they have any profit share left at the end of this <laughs> after all these payoffs well they were big payouts so so it all got busted open because a spaghetti salesman. Oh, come on. <laughs> Called Giuseppe. <laughs> no, no, actually, no, no, Herman Petrio, who was one of the crooks, uh, he was a, a former spaghetti salesman who'd fallen There's on no hard times. There's no such yeah. job. No, no, but, no, no, but the, you can see why, because remember, this is just after the Depression. So it all, Everyone was a spaghetti salesman. It all started <laughs> unravelling in June of 1938. Did they just sell one very long? Long strand, and you'd cut it up <laughs> into bits. Or was it already yeah. pre-cut? Wait a minute, this spaghetti is cut. Oil. This is yeah. cut. <laughs> no, no. So it all started unraveling because this unraveling. This, this guy who was a petty criminal, he'd just gotten out of jail. It was in June 1938, and he had a, an idea 
for a business that he wanted to start, and he needed twenty five dollars. Revolutionary idea! I sell spaghetti <laughs> door to door. He was a he was a maverick. He was going to get into tagliatelle. <laughs> <laughs> No, the spaghetti's husband was a member of the ring. Right. Like yeah. he was the he was the crime boss. The right. ring, like a few silly. Right. Yeah. Um, but he got approached by this other guy who wanted twenty five dollars to start his business, and Herman Petrio, the spaghetti salesman, said, "Look, instead of giving you twenty five dollars to start your business, why don't I give you six hundred dollars if you murder that person?" Right. So then. What this guy who who wanted $25 but was offered $600, he immediately went to the authorities. Oh. And the authorities, um, I don't know whether they bugged him, but they certainly turned him into a, a sort of secret agent for them. And he had to go around and convincingly sort of con- uh. convince them that he was into murdering yes, people. Yes, but for, secretly for wearing a wire and recording evidence to, yes. to make the federal case. Exactly. So they ended up gathering enough evidence on this guy to arrest him. And it, it went to trial. They had quite a lot of evidence because they had this informer who, mm. who could basically under, uncover the whole thing. But Petrio decided his best bet was, because he was facing the death penalty, wow. his best bet was to plead not guilty and sort of try and bluff his way out of the whole thing. So the trial involved um, spiritualists. So people went to spiritualists mm. and the spiritualists would say, um, here, take this magic potion and oh, right. they'd be killed. Um, then uh, people who who applied folk medicine were also there. There were... Um, Naturopaths. Uh yeah, natru- there were uh, marriage relationship counsellors um, and then, of course, doctors and insurance agents. So it was this yeah, huge, really- wide, sprawling ring yeah, wow. um, where they ended up killing at least 141 people, but people say that because a lot of them happened before they were busted, uh, it was probably actually in the thousands of people. Wow. That, and uh, what are you, got. 1940s, this was? Yeah, this was the late 1930s, yeah. 1930s, so yeah. just pre-war. It, I guess it was a fabulous time to be a criminal because because medicine wasn't so advanced that, you know, you didn't have coroners and autopsies. Yeah, there were to, forensic pathology. Yeah, to, right? to nail the exact cause of death. So the, the first term I think you used, Charles, was toxic overload, which mm. is sufficiently vague. So you probably could have got away with poisoning, as mm. they did right back into medieval days, because no one could really pinpoint arsenic as the cause of death. They just knew they died of something. So it's kind of genius for its day. Um, now, it's obviously, <laughs> morally, I think it's cat's piss. Uh, you know, I don't think we mm. can advocate the, the mass poisoning yeah. of half of Philadelphia. But, mm. yeah, I, I do. Big call. Big call. But, I mean, we heard, we've heard but, it first here. Yeah, but, I mean, I was fine with dirty. <laughs> the dirty yeah, you're, you're pretty comfortable yeah. with the Nazis, I, if I recall. I was okay with the Nazis, but there's something about arsenic. Maybe it's the word arse. I don't know. But, Chris, I mean, the point is that if you got a bit icky about it and sort of went, oh, I don't like the murder part of this whole thing, that's where the ring would come in and they'd say, okay, well, we'll do the murder for you if you want. Um, and they actually even had finance plans. So they'd say, okay, well, we, we can start, you know, you, you obviously need money now. We'll start giving you your weekly payments before the insurance money comes in. So on it's the like basis a timeshare plan for murder. Yeah, for murder. And when the final murder comes in, you get the rest of the bulk payments and stuff like that. It was, it was a real, yeah. it was a very, 
You know, it was sort of like a nimble loan. It was yeah. sort of like a, a startup. It was like Uber or something like that. The way they were so responsive to all the needs. Yeah, a a no, pay-death lender. Yeah. Well, it was sanctity <laughs> of life, like, less back then. You know, well, we the war of, was on, oh, so yes. people were dying everywhere. That's what I'm wondering. I wonder yes. if death was sort of not such a novelty, not such a sort of big deal and maybe even sought after in some circles because there was so much death of relatives around. And they just come out of the Depression. Yeah, so because, you know, now, I mean, this would be, you know, I'm not saying it was unscandalous back then, but it would be just unthinkable that doctors and marriage counsellors and spiritual guidance um, people Mm. would all get in on this because the belief in the sanctity of life, I think, would prevent you from wanting to get your hands dirty on this. Whereas I wonder (laughs) if it was a slightly more (laughs) casual approach to murder back in the 40s. (laughs) It sounds like people still had an issue with this thing, Chris. Well, well, it was illegal, but but I'm very surprised (laughs) that that many people got in. Yeah, Andrew... Who who had an objection to it? That the doctors undertake henchmen and poison pickers were all in on it. Like they were, uh, everyone was in on it. Uh, but the fact that we're talking about it now means that eventually somebody went, oh, maybe we, we shouldn't oh, be allowing that's all the these point. doctors to do this. No, no, but we, we get that it was illegal, but we, I'm expressing surprise that that many people thought it was an okay thing to do. Yeah. But muck in on oh, it. I think, yes. I think part of it was that they'd get you in on... Um, you know, they'd, they'd start paying you the money. They'd make you a bit guilty. You know how every it's a pyramid scam. scam. Yeah, it's right. a pyramid murder scam. Yeah. So you start feeling compromised and so you feel and you it, can't go to the police. So, because, so the first meeting yeah. wasn't you're going to murder someone tomorrow. They'd gradually get you in inch by inch. Yeah. I wonder if also it was informed by the fact they'd just come out of the Depression so everyone was poor and the idea of a quick dollar was quite attractive. And, and I imagine, like, it's because apparently a lot of them were women who were just unhappy with their husbands. And, you know, the standard way of doing that selling was, well, here's a potion. It's a love potion, but it's very strong. It could kill them or it could make them your lovely husband who's really passionate again. And so this double-edged sort of they could convince themselves, oh, well, I'm giving them a love potion, sort of kind of knowing in the back of their heads, oh, maybe I'll just end up with 600 bucks from... Yeah, you know, God, I'm glad we brought in no-fault divorce. Yeah, well, also because they would have been Italian, very strong Catholic, I presume, so they couldn't have divorced. Oh, so they maybe, can't, yeah. many of them might have seen this as their only exit. Yeah. So no, it's cat's pajamas all the way. <laughs> no, this is complete cat's piss. It's incredibly complicated. I still don't understand all the nuances of it. What I've heard from very reputable sources, if you want to do insurance fraud, all you do is buy a printing warehouse, yes. insure it to the hilt and burn the thing down and absolutely fine. So I've heard, allegedly. Cat's Pyjamas or Cat's Piss with The Chaser was written and presented by The Chaser. Created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell. Sound production by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the Podcast One app or search Cat's Pyjamas on Apple Podcasts.